It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Today's story, The Legends of Flight, Bob Hoover and the Barnstormers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. That sound you just heard, by the way, is the sound of a P-51 Mustang starting up and taking to the air. Today's story, Bob Hoover and the Barnstormers, showcases all four of our show categories, starting with Heroes many of whom, like our subject, Bob Hoover, became living legends, adding to the rich history of early flight, and earned reputations as daredevils on account of the manner of death-defying acrobatics they performed routinely at air shows when those types of maneuvers were still legal. How some of these pioneers of flight survived at all is still a mystery to many. Those who were lucky enough to see them in action at air shows will always be able to treasure that experience because those shows have clamped down on many of the old-style stunts and races in the name of public safety. We'll do a little reminiscing today about the old air shows, especially the legendary Cleveland National Air Races, because we're a history podcast, and there's a wealth of great history there. And we'll cover the life and career of the great American hero of flight, Bob Hoover, who Chuck Yeager called, quote, the greatest pilot I ever saw. And if Chuck Yeager gave you that seal of approval, you no doubt deserved it. Jimmy Doolittle called Bob Hoover the greatest stick and rudder man who ever lived. You don't pick up compliments like that unless they're heartfelt. One thing is for certain, there have always been men and women who would rather fly than do anything else in life. It's just in their DNA. Here's one great example. It's the World War II capture and escape story of Sir Douglas Bader, an RAF that's Royal Air Force, pilot, with 22 aerial victories, four shared victories, six probables, and 11 enemy aircraft damaged. While attempting some aerobatics in 1931, he crashed and lost both legs in the mishap. Undeterred, he recovered, rehabbed, and when he was able and fitted with prosthetic legs, he retook flight school, passed, and requested reactivation as a pilot, 
but was turned out. When war broke out with Germany in 1939, the RAF quickly found themselves needing pilots, and he was reinstated. He scored his first victories over Dunkirk during the Battle of France in 1940. He then took part in the Battle of Britain and became a friend and supporter of Air Vice Marshal Trafford Lee Mallory and his Big Wing experiments, which were B-shaped squadrons sent up to meet Luftwaffe bombers and their fighter support. In August of 1941, having become an ace many times over, Bader's plane was hit and he bailed out over German-occupied France and was captured. Soon afterward, he met and was befriended by Adolf Galland, a prominent German fighter ace. Despite his disability, Bader made a number of escape attempts, but on his last, he was recaptured and the Germans threatened to take away his legs unless he gave his word he would stop. He gave his word and was eventually sent to the prisoner of war camp at Kolditz Castle. I could do a story on Kolditz Castle, which was a thousand-year-old fortress in the heart of Hitler's Reich, with walls seven feet thick and a list of Allied officer prisoners that could fill a who's-who list of World War II celebrities. It was one prison where the Germans actually followed the rules of the Geneva Convention. For example, prisoners were not executed here for trying to escape. Instead, it was seen as their duty to try. Well, it was the guards' duty to stop them. Bader remained there until April 1945, when the camp was liberated by the American First Army. Bader flew again for the RAF until 1946. If Bader could have stolen a German plane upon breaking out of prison camp, he would have, much the same as Bob Hoover did during his daring escape from a German Stalag camp, which we'll cover later in this story. The 20th century probably saw more inventions and progress than any other century in history and arguably one of the greatest inventions that grew and prospered was the airplane. When World War I ended, there was a surplus of Curtis JN-4 Jenny biplanes which had been used to train the thousands of military aviators who took part in the war, and the government sold off their surplus planes at a bargain price, often as low as $200 apiece. Many servicemen who had been trained on these planes seized that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to own their own plane. In the 20s, the popularity of flying grew rapidly, and all kinds of uses sprang up in the form of opportunities to make money with these flying machines, from delivering mail, to smuggling, to chartering passengers, to putting on air shows. And there was a huge demand for air shows. The pilot entertainers represented a wide mix of people, including former military men, women, and minorities of all ages, and even children, provided they could sit up high enough to see and operate the controls. And most of these planes didn't have seats, a lot of times, people sat on crates, there was no FAA, and you didn't need a license in those days. These entertainers were called barnstormers. In 1915, Catherine Stinson became the first woman pilot to perform a loop. Bessie Coleman, an African-American woman, not only thrilled audiences with her stunts as a barnstormer, but became a role model for women and African-Americans. Charles Lindbergh, who performed the first transatlantic flight in his plane, The Spirit of St. Louis, was an early barnstormer, and it was he working as a flight assistant for Errol Ball, who did the first wing walk, actually walking out onto the top wing of a biplane and waving to the crowds below while it was flying. And there were huge crowds. Barnstorming ran from early spring until after the fall harvest and the county fairs that celebrated the harvest. Most shows started with a pilot or team of pilots who flew over small towns dropping leaflets announcing a coming show. They would then land at a local farm, and when you picture a formation of several planes making a surprise landing in a cow pasture, usually after making a few close passes over the barn, then you see where the term barnstorming came from. 
they would then negotiate with the farmer for the use of a field they could use as a temporary runway and place from which they could stage an air show and offer rides. The lucky farmer would get a percentage of the take. The shows got more wild and daring each year as flyers did all sorts of stunts, flying through burning hoops, doing loops, stalls, spins, dives, and barrel rolls. Then there were acrobatic performers who would walk on the wings, or some would even dance or shoot targets. Some would parachute. One of the most dangerous stunts, and there were many, was to fly through a barn. Yep, in through the front and out through the back. A very dangerous stunt. This, as you can imagine, resulted in a large number of crashed planes and dead pilots. The larger and more organized air shows were called flying circuses, and these employed a number of pilots as well as promoters who would book the shows through the towns or in some cases cities. Some of the most famous of these were the Five Blackbirds, which was an African-American flying group, the Flying Aces, the Thirteen Black Cats, Mabel Cody's Flying Service, and others. I don't know how many of you got a chance to see Spielberg's 1973 movie Ace, Eli, and Roger of the Skies, but it was pretty good. Cliff Robertson starred as a Jenny pilot who barnstormed with his young son. Which brings us to the little town that wanted to be a big city, Cleveland, Ohio. And the town's power elite, in an effort to gain national prominence, saw the national air races as a means to accomplish that. Held annually, the air races drew tens of thousands of people from all over the country, and those people had the potential to bring millions of outside dollars to Cleveland, and did. In 1929, Cleveland was successful in signing a long-term contract with the National Air Races, which were hosted at the Cleveland Airport. The races attracted an enormous crowd and showcased celebrities such as Charles Lindbergh, James Doolittle, and Wiley Post, and garnered media attention nationally and internationally. Among the events which the newspapers loved to cover were the cross-country Bendix Trophy Race, which was a long-distance marathon from Los Angeles to Cleveland, as well as the Daredevil Thompson Trophy Contest, which was a closed-course, high-speed race around pylons. Because there were few safety rules attached, the Thompson Trophy races, as well as the stunts regularly performed at the air shows, were dangerous and often deadly to both pilots and spectators. If you think this had the potential of discouraging crowds, you'd be dead wrong. The crowds grew larger each year, and the risk of a serious crash increased as Cleveland suburbs mushroomed out toward the airfield. The death toll began at the very first races held in Cleveland in 1929. Five men died in the cross-country trophy race. Cleveland local pilot Thomas Reed was killed on August 31st when his big green Emsco aircraft crashed in the woods near West 226th Street and Westwood Road, just three hours after he set a world record for a solo endurance flight. Why he was still flying only hours after completing a flight that set a record for human endurance is anyone's guess but it provided a great example as to why limits on flight time are set for commercial pilots. Then there was the crash of Lady Mary Heath's Great Lakes trainer through the roof of the Mills Company at 969 Wayside Drive, Cleveland. Her life deserves a movie. I'll give you a paragraph here. She was typical of some of the leading adventure-seeking personalities that events like the National Air Races drew. She was born in County Limerick, Ireland, and after a disturbing childhood during which her father bludgeoned her mother to death, she was sent to the home of her grandfather and placed under the care of her two aunts who encouraged her to get a college degree, which she did. There were not many women getting college degrees in those days. She then moved to Kenya with her first husband where she published a book of poetry. When World War I broke out, she became a dispatch writer and founded the Women's Amateur Athletic Association. 
She also became the first women's javelin champion and represented the UK at the 1923 Women's Olympiad in long jump, javelin, and pentathlon. But what she really wanted was to fly, and she soon became the first woman to hold a commercial flying license in Great Britain, as well as the first woman to parachute from an airplane, which she did onto a football field in the middle of a match. In the U.S., she was called Lady Lindy, after flying an open cockpit plane solo from Cape Town to London. While practicing for stunts at the Cleveland races, she lost control of her plane and crashed into a barn, injuring herself badly. For a period of about five years in the mid to late 20s, Lady Heath was one of the most written about and talked about women on the planet. The final irony? She died in 1939 from head injuries sustained from falling out of a streetcar. Following Lady Heath's crash into the barn, parachutist Norma Stevens nearly died when her parachute failed to open properly in an abrupt descent on Grayton Road during the national air races. Then a few years went by at the races without any serious calamities. But then in 1934, on September 3rd, Douglas Davis, the winner of that year's Bendix race, lost control of his plane during the eighth lap of the Thompson Trophy race, which was a high-speed course with tight turns plotted at low altitudes over the suburbs ringing the Cleveland airport. Just as Davis negotiated the number two pylon, his black-and-white monoplane shot straight up into the air and then came down at 350 miles an hour, smashing into a field in North Olmsted Village near Lorraine and Gresner Roads. Efforts to extricate Davis's pulverized corpse were hampered by literally thousands of Clevelanders who thronged to the scene trying to scavenge souvenirs from the grisly wreckage. And therein lies the worst of humanity, the morbid curiosity to witness death, and perhaps, if one is lucky, to actually grab a souvenir. It's what attracts people to car races, to fights, and to battlefields after the bullets have stopped flying. It's what brought hundreds of people out of the woods to a lonely side road in the middle of rural Louisiana to surround Bonnie and Clyde's death car that same year, 1934. Morbid curiosity. Search 1001 Heroes for Bonnie and Clyde, and you'll enjoy the two-episode series we have there in our archives. The next fatality came on September 2, 1937, when the wings of pilot Lee Miles' plane disintegrated during speed trials at the airport, at the Cleveland airport. Miles was killed instantly when his fuselage slammed into some trees on Grayton Road. The next day, stunt flyer Count Otto von Hagenberg of Germany crashed when his plane, flying only one foot above the ground at 150 miles an hour, crashed. Incredibly, the Count walked away with a slight head wound and a wave to the crowd. In 1938, the engine of Russell G. Chambers' plane exploded at an altitude of 150 feet and crashed into a pear orchard between Wagar and Clegg Roads. Chambers died several days later. Three days after his crash, a connecting rod in George Duroy's fleet Bushy McGrew racer broke while he was flying in the Grieve Trophy race. He courageously managed to maneuver his plane away from crashing into a crowded residential area and crashed it instead into a dead end at West 227th Street in Lorraine, a suburb of Cleveland. The badly injured Dory was pulled from the wreckage by an eight-year-old boy and his father. More spectacular deaths and near deaths followed in 1939 and in the 40s, until 1947. That year drew several hundred thousand spectators, and, as no doubt hoped for by many, resulted in multiple deaths and crashes. During the Thompson Trophy race on September 1, which was described by one newspaper as the wildest, fastest 30 minutes of air racing in history, hometown pilot Anthony Genazzo lost control of his Navy surplus Corsair and plunged into a field on Royalton Road. As his plane exploded, Hurling Genazzo's body clear, the plane's engine skipped across Royalton Road, 
narrowly missing a car with four persons in it, knocked down three apple trees, and buried itself in the ground. Just minutes later, J.L. Ziegler bailed out of his P-40 fighter after his engine failed, landing in a patch of swamp off Brook Park Road and breaking his right leg. His plane, however, continued on, slicing off the top of a boxcar in the New York Central Yard near West 150th Street, with the fuselage crashing into an adjacent mesh of railroad tracks. Mrs. Melvin Track was hit and injured by Ziegler's plexiglass cockpit, which landed on her while she was relaxing in a chair in her backyard watching the races. Two more crashes occurred that year, and one more fatality occurred in 1948, and then in 1949 a pilot named Odom lost control of his F-51, which flipped over on its back and headed straight towards a residential neighborhood at West and Beeler Road in Berea. Odom had been hired by Jackie Cochran, by then a world-famous female pilot and owner of her own perfume company. You might recall her as being a close friend of Amelia Earhart. It was Jackie Cochran who traveled with our State Department to Japan when World War II ended to see if she could secure any information on Earhart's capture from them, and as we know, they remained tight-lipped. Jackie had offered the job of flying a modified P-51 at the Thompson Race in Cleveland to Bob Hoover, but she decided to hire Odom instead. Hoover asked Odom just before the race how much time he had clocked in fighters. Odom answered, 15 hours. After hearing that, Hoover was convinced Odom didn't have much of a chance of surviving. At 4.48 p.m. on Saturday, September 5, 1949, Bradley Laird was standing outside his ranch house in a quiet Cleveland suburb he had just moved into a few days before, and today he was washing the outside windows and having a playful hose fight with his five-year-old son. His father-in-law was in the front yard with Laird's 13-month-old son. His wife Jeannie was inside watching the air show through a bathroom window while cleaning. Odom's P-51 Mustang went out of control and hit the Laird house so hard and fast that it bored through the foundation and buried its nose six feet into the earth beneath it. Odom, of course, was killed instantly and incinerated so completely that all rescuers could later find was his watch. Jenny was killed by the flame and from the huge fire caused by the exploding plane. The house literally exploded, sending pieces of flaming roofing and siding down into the yard, where Laird's father-in-law was trying to save Laird's son, whose clothes had caught on fire in his playpen. Fortunately, all the family who was in the yard survived. That accident, and the resulting public furor over the danger of holding the races so near residential areas, pretty much put a cap on the national air races in Cleveland, at least until 1964, when they reappeared at Burke Lakefront Airport. By 1964, the old death-defying stunts had been tamed down a little bit, Laws were put in place to protect innocent people, and restrictions were enacted to protect bystanders and residential communities. But the legends of flying still flourished, and with faster and more controllable planes, their names and their fame grew larger with every coming year. One of these flying legends is one of the two topics of our story today. His name is Bob Hoover, and his incredible story begins right after these sponsor messages. Bob was one of those people you would say was just born to fly. As a kid, he was infatuated with flight, beginning with the moment he heard of Lindbergh's record-breaking transatlantic flight. Bob imagined himself sitting in the cockpit of a plane and flying over the ocean. With his dad's help, he assembled models of World War I planes such as the SEV-5, the Newport, and the Spad. At school, he read everything he could find on the subject of flying. His hero was stunt flyer turned aeronautical engineer turned World War II hero Jimmy Doolittle, who in 
who led the 1942 bombing raid over a surprised and shocked Japan, which had just attacked Pearl Harbor and bases in the Philippines months before, and were considering themselves untouchable on the other side of the Pacific. Bob Hoover grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and rode his bicycle 15 miles to Barry Airport regularly just to watch the planes flying in and out. He watched the Tennessee National Guard flying the Douglas O-38 biplanes and dreamed of the day he could fly one. It was there that he met a flamboyant celebrity flyer named Roscoe Turner, who let young Hoover sit in the cockpit of his Laird, and from that day on, Bob Hoover knew exactly what he wanted to be and do. He started taking flying lessons at age 16 and turned 18 in 1940, at which time he was capable of doing precise loops rolls in a Piper Cub, along with more complex maneuvers usually only performed by serious veteran stunt flyers. He joined a National Guard squadron, and when his time off came, he would perform barnstorming tours with a friend named Denny McClendon, flying an E-2. The National Guard soon merged with the Army Air Corps, where he learned how to fly bombers, transports, and fighter planes, which were his favorite. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Bob went through basic training at Greenville, Mississippi, learning how to fly using instruments, which was quite different from flying by sight and feel. Then he was introduced to the P-40 and the P-39 aircrafts. In 1942, at the age of 20, Bob Hoover was honored with the rank of sergeant and put in charge of 67 pilots aboard the Queen Elizabeth on the way to Europe to fight Germans. The first stop was the little town of Greenock, England, and from there they traveled by rail to the small town of Stone, just north of London. It was there that 67 American pilots found themselves in a veritable sea of British women who were working in the munitions factories and staying in the hostels that had been built for them there. Hoover and his men were given one wing of the hostels, which left them as the only group of men among 10,000 women. In the hub there was a recreation hall and dining area. Hoover would later describe his time there as heaven on earth. One of his pilots, Tom Watts, wrote in his diary, One would really think these girls had never seen a man before. Never have I seen a more eager bunch of females. The boys in our group went hog-wild. Some even attempted to employ the attention of three or four girls in one evening. They flew training out of nearby Atcham Field, and a good deal of that training involved aircraft identification. The instructors had small models of German and Italian airplanes hanging like mobiles, so they could see them from all angles. Split-second images of these planes were flashed on a screen, and the pilots had to be able to identify them just as fast. The same went for types of ships. Then came training on what to do if captured, which was to provide only name, rank, and serial number. Most of 1942 was spent in training. Then, in November, they received orders to head for Africa. Hoover expected to be able to fly combat, but due to his deep experience with flying all types of aircraft, he was handed a role as a test pilot, which really nettled him, because he wanted to be a fighter pilot. When brand new planes arrived in crates, a test pilot would be responsible for flying each one, making sure they were safe, and submitting a report on the plane's handleability and performance. Bob flew the P-38s, P-39s, P-40s, Spitfires, and Hurricanes that came out of those crates, working from dawn till dusk, and suffered a number of close calls with some of the defects that the new planes arrived with. All the while he was pressuring his CO to let him fly combat missions, but his CO kept telling him he had no one with his talents to replace him. Sometimes you can be too good at what you do to your own demise. On the other side of that coin, be careful what you wish for. Finally, after much wrangling and waiting for a chance to fly combat, the opportunity came in September of 1943. 
Hoover was transferred to the 4th Squadron at Palermo, Italy, with the responsibility of escorting Allied ship convoys which were bringing supplies to forward bases in Italy. Wherever Hoover was assigned, he spent what spare time he had doing mock dogfights in the air, flying Spitfires, P-38s, and P-40s, basically putting on a show, which he loved to do. His reputation widened until most of the pilots in the European theater had heard of him and what he could do with a plane. When a badly damaged B-26 bomber wound up crashed on a small strip of sand at Messina, they called him to see if he could find a way to fly it off. It was sitting landing gear collapsed on a thousand-yard stretch of narrow sand that dropped off at a 12-foot cliff into the straits. If it could be flown, it needed to be able to get airborne before it hit that cliff. One look told Hoover that it would never make it unless it was completely stripped. Seats, most of the instruments, and anything that wasn't needed to fly it had to be taken out. He asked the crew to lay down 300 feet of steel matting in front of it. After a month of preparation, the day came, and the site was now filled with several hundred troops and a Stars and Stripes reporter. At the last moment, a sergeant insisted in going along, but Bob protested, saying, We don't even have a seat for you. But he came anyway. Hoover ran up the R-2800 engines in the Marauder, dropped the quarter flaps, and ran a tight course along the matting, as any slight deviance from straight would mean disaster. There were only a few feet of matting on either side. With inches to spare, they made it, and Hoover sailed into legend status. He was able to take on a P-40 in a mock dogfight and pull a few maneuvers over the base before he landed the B-26 bomber. Finally, in September of 1943, Hoover got his chance to go into combat, and it was in a Spitfire. He and a close friend, Tom Watts, had been sitting in their planes adjacent to the runway at their base, engines running, on duty for any call they might get. A green flare shot out over them, the signal that radar had picked up oncoming enemy planes. Once in the air, ground control confirmed bogeys at 360. 100 plus, meaning a huge convoy of enemy planes was heading their way. Once they made a visual confirmation, they saw that they were Italian planes, mostly bombers with some fighters attached. He and Tom angled up behind the convoy, and just as they prepared to make a dive for the kill... Their radios crackled. The Italians have surrendered. You are to escort those planes to base. Do you copy? Both pilots grimaced and moved their hands away from the gun switches as they moved out and ahead of the lead plane in the Armada and led it back to base. They could both see the pilots waving cheerfully at them and grinning. There were no words later which could adequately describe their feelings of frustration. Hoover was 22 years old and had flown 59 missions, none of them combat although some had required strafing enemy ships and barges. The base at Palermo had taken some heavy pilot casualties in those late months of 1943. There were 34 pilots there when Bob had arrived. By New Year's Day of 1944, only 13 remained. On January 24th, Tom Watts, Bob's closest friend and fellow pilot, was forced to bail out and drown near a reef at Corsica. On February 9th, 1944, Bob was flying Spitfires out of a new base at Calvi and flying harassment missions over German shipping when he and his fellow flyers were attacked by four German Focke-Wolf 190s, easily identifiable by the bright yellow cowling which highlighted a blue plane body. The FW-190s were Germany's best fighter plane, and one was headed directly after one of the Spitfires in Bob's command. The FW-190s were extremely fast and versatile, and Hoover knew that he was going to have to lighten his load if he was going to survive this one. He yanked at the release handle to the external fuel tank to lighten his load, and it broke off in his hand. He had one choice, and that was to head straight for the German fighter and fire, 
and he pressed the trigger, spewing 50 caliber rounds at the FW-190 as it weaved violently. Then he saw billows of smoke coming from the German fighter. He had made a hit. That was kill one. Two Focke got on Bob's tail, and he dove left to avoid them, thinking that there were two more Spitfires near him to help. But then he realized with a sudden panic that they had left him stranded. He let them know in no uncertain terms what he thought of them, but that didn't bring them back. The FW-190 struck at him twice, but because he was going so slow with that extra tank attached, they overshot him. Two more came at him, and he fired and hit one, but realized at the same time that he had been hit. He fired at a third, but at that moment his engine exploded, sending oil onto his windshield as his Spitfire burst into flames. Hoover bailed out, his chute catching about 300 feet from the sea, and he was soon picked up by a German ship. Years later, he would receive a letter from a German publishing company informing him who it was that shot him and three fellow pilots down that day. The German pilot's name was Lemke, and he had shot down 72 Allied planes during World War II. The two pilots who had abandoned Hoover were disciplined back at the base, as the base had picked up Hoover's angry words as well. But pilots were sorely needed, and they would need to survive in the future, hoping that others would not turn and run the next time they were in trouble. Soon he found himself strapped to a marble column in a hotel in Cannes, while angry German widows and their children pummeled him, spit on him, and found every way possible to degrade him, taking out their frustrations on him for supposedly killing their loved ones. One would think they would blame Hitler for getting them in a war in the first place, but we all know that's not how it works with the bereaved. For months Hoover was subjected to interrogation, torture, starvation, lack of medical treatment, and isolation. He tried to escape numerous times but failed, getting nothing for his efforts other than guard dog bites and more bad treatment. Finally, his opportunity came to escape from Stalag 1. An American named Jerry Ennis, a Canadian named George, and Bob Hoover took advantage of a staged fight which drew the guard's attention away for enough time for the three of them to reach a barbed wire fence and crawl through it, then escape through the woods until they reached the shore of the Baltic Sea. Although it was the middle of winter, they assembled a crude raft and rowed it to the opposite shore, carrying their dry clothes in a separate bag. The next day they reached a small village where George headed off his own way. They never saw him again. Jerry and Bob did encounter Russians, but had heard that Russians considered all escaped prisoners to be enemy collaborators, and usually shot them on the spot. In one village the Russians had raped, tortured, and killed scores of civilians, and Bob and Jerry were led to ditches by surviving women who wanted to show them what the Russians were doing to their village. The Russians were apparently very good at waging war against old men, women, and children, and were no strangers at digging mass graves for their victims. Finally they came to an abandoned Luftwaffe base, or nearly abandoned, and they found a Falkwolf that had full fuel tanks. Bob climbed up into the cockpit, looked at the controls, started it, flew it along the coastline to Holland, and successfully landed it in a field, where farmers branding pitchforks coaxed them off the plane and delivered them to British authorities. How did he know how to fly it? Bob had spent one hour at Stalag 1, talking to another pilot named Gus Lindquist, who had flown the FW-190, and that turned out to be enough to do the trick. Back in the States, and in one piece, Hoover was reassigned to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, where he met Chuck Yeager, and the two, now that the war had ended, began putting on air shows, selling war bonds in cities and towns all across the country. He also ran into Gus Lindquist again, and was able to thank him for that conversation back at Stalag 1. 
The two couldn't resist mock dogfighting, and one of those fights earned them a reprimand and a reassignment to B-17 bombers in a Florida base. Gus voluntarily washed out of the test division to earn his Ph.D., while Bob stayed in, determined to talk to the lieutenant colonel who had threatened him with a transfer to keep him at Dayton. The lieutenant colonel, Bill Council, grounded him and gave him work as a desk clerk, but later was to offer him a second chance with an X-1 test team. The kind of test they gave Hoover would put fear into the heart of any pilot. A good example, the P-47 Thunderbolt was showing a tendency to tuck under when recovery was attempted at high speeds. Two test pilots had lost their lives trying to figure out a solution to it. Test flying these planes was dangerous because bailout had to be performed at speeds in excess of 500 miles per hour. Ejection seats didn't exist at that time. In that instance, Hoover had all he could do to land the plane in one piece. After World War II, the race for airspeed was on. No one in the world had exceeded Mach 1, and America's hope for doing it was the X-1. They were looking for volunteers who wanted to be the first to break the sound barrier. Hoover, Jaeger, and others wanted to be that man, and Hoover was picked. However, he couldn't resist a little hot-dogging in a P-80 at the Springfield Airport, where it just happened that an FAA agent was on hand to give him a write-up. He got called in on it and lost his chance to be the first to break the sound barrier to Chuck Yeager. The rest was history. They did find out that the word barrier in sound barrier really does mean a sort of a wall you have to crash through. These pilots spent a lot of time in the air and palling around on the ground as well. In Bob Hoover's biography, Forever Flying, which I highly recommend you get a hold of, Hoover describes a bear hunting incident with Chuck Yeager. They were taking a break while preparing for test flying the new X-1 supersonic jet. Bob, Chuck, and two others involved in their test program decided to go bear hunting in a logging area that Chuck had seen while testing a P-80. Hoover was armed with two pistols and a twenty-two rifle, which will give you some idea of just how well they were unprepared. They ended up camping near a garbage dump, where they assumed, naturally, there would be bears. Two of them flipped and won the right to two sleeping bags, while the other two slept in the car. Bob and Rush Schley were sleeping in their bags when a small pine branch broke off a tree and gently brushed Hoover's nose. He thought it was a bear licking his nose, and immediately tugged at the sleeping bag and leaped up trying to get away, but fell backward head over heels and then rolled backwards and downwards toward the garbage dump. One of the men mistook Hoover for a bear in the darkness and fired at him, at which point he yelled, You son of a bee! You're going to kill me! And the firing stopped. He wrote, Jaeger and Ridley never did let me down for that. That was my last bear hunt. Bob never did get to fly the X-1 due to an accident which occurred when an F-84 Thunderjet he was flying suffered engine failure and then went out of control. His ejection seat then failed to fire, so he jettisoned the canopy letting himself be sucked out of the cockpit, whereupon his body smashed into the tail of the plane. He was knocked unconscious, but the rush of wind as he was falling jarred him, and he pulled his parachute cord just in time. He believed both his legs were broken, but felt nothing when he hit the ground, in a high wind which caused his parachute and himself to be dragged across the desert over ten miles. He was found by a ranch hand and loaded onto a pickup truck and brought to Antelope Valley Hospital, where the staff refused to treat him, thinking that because he was military, they wouldn't be paid for it. He had suffered one broken leg and multiple facial wounds, and was in terrific pain. Finally, an older nurse took pity on him and gave him a shot of morphine. He was soon discovered and picked up and transferred to a military hospital where he was met by his new wife, Colleen, and Chuck Yeager. 
Colleen produced a bottle of whiskey from her coat pocket, and they passed it around until it was empty. It wasn't long before Bob received a clean bill of health and was test piloting at Wright Field. By 1949, Bob Hoover was headed for Indianapolis with Colleen to start a new civilian job with Allison, a company which manufactured jet engines for the Air Force and Navy, finding that to be extremely dangerous work as well, as engine makers in the late 40s were focused entirely on speed. And with speed comes risk. It was the test pilots who risked the most. The offers kept coming, and soon Bob found himself at North American, flight testing the F-86 Sabre jet, which during the Korean War became the formidable enemy of the Russian MiG. At the tender age of 29, Hoover was a celebrated hero, stunt pilot, and test pilot, and had met most of the celebrities involved with aircraft at that time, including Jimmy Doolittle, Charles Lindbergh, Jackie Cochran, Werner von Braun, Howard Hughes, General Hap Arnold, Chuck Yeager, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, and a host of others. He was used to living on the edge. Writer Ward Lauren described the characteristics of a test pilot in the North American Company magazine Skyline in the early 50s. When men do things never done before with an airplane never before flown, anything can happen. It's true. The unexpected is always a positive factor. But always present to reduce the effect is the intense degree of skill which the modern test pilot must have to cope with the increasingly complex airplanes. Contrary possibly to popular belief, engineering test pilots are not white-scarbed, leather-garbed barnstormers who fly for thrills and the chance to pass off a close call, as all in a day's work. They have nerve, yes, but more than that they have years of flying experience, technical knowledge, and confidence in the aircraft they're flying, as well as in their own ability to cope with the unexpected, an awareness born of the combination of all three. They are, in effect, flying engineers, highly specialized, highly trained, but it must be admitted, with enough of the daredevil spirit of the bailing wire and fabric days to push their luck a little now and then. In 1950, when war broke out with Korea, Hoover was sent by North American to brief our F-86 pilots on changes in bomb capabilities, many of which he had instituted in testing. Arriving in North Korea, he was told by the 5th Air Force commander to fly combat. In fact, he was told by General Barkas, quote, Hoover, if you're not willing to fly and fight, pack your bags and head home. Other pilots have just visited for a day or so and spent the rest of their time living it up in Tokyo. Before Hoover left for the airfield, General Brown, who later became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told General Barkas in no uncertain terms that he had misjudged Hoover. Hoover, although ordered by his company not to fly combat, had been waiting for just such an opportunity. They sent him on a bombing run, and he landed two bombs on a bridge at the first pass. He instilled badly needed morale among pilots who had been seeing heavy casualties amongst their group. He demonstrated what he preached until he had won their confidence, and more importantly, taught them how to stay alive and prosper in the newly bomb-equipped F-86. The one thing he was not given was an opportunity to fly combat. In the 50s, North American became North American Rockwell, and Bob suffered the ups and downs of a highly skilled test pilot who wasn't afraid to call a badly designed plane a dangerous plane, knowing that that kind of feedback could do damage to his reputation. But he wasn't in the job for himself. He was trying to save lives of pilots and create planes that could win wars. Then the years passed, and not without dozens of headline-making flights and appearances. Bob could now be seen in a business suit and his trademark straw hat at air shows, where he was performing and attending various business functions. It's often said that a cowboy will ride anything that has hair. 
Hoover was no different with things that fly, and learned how to pilot helicopters, hot air balloons, and even blimps. The stories of Bob Hoover's middle and later years and his contributions to the world of flight, as well as to enhancing the reputation of test pilots everywhere, could fill a library. For sure, it filled the aforementioned book, Forever Flying, Bob's autobiography, which I found to be an excellent read. In 1986, Bob Hoover was invited to a ceremony at the Smithsonian, where he received the Lindbergh Medal for Lifetime Achievement. I found a fitting end to this story with some footage that I think all Bob Hoover fans, and I know you're out there because I've been reading your requests for me to do a story about him, will enjoy. Mr. Hoover, one second. I have a question uh, for you, sir. In your book, I read that uh, Yuri Gagarin kind of saved you from the KGB in Moscow. So as an intelligence officer, I was wondering if you'd say a few words about when you flew a Soviet aircraft in Moscow and, and what happened to you. Okay, I hate to keep people waiting so long here. But uh, I had performed, in 1965, I was over at the Paris Air Show, and uh, President Johnson had stated that we would not have any participation in the Paris Air Show, and uh, any U.S. participation. But we could have booths, but no flying displays. And I was over there for North American Aviation, and just a snoop around and find out what I could that the other companies were doing. And Chet Bolin was the uh, ambassador to France. And the second day of the show, he came out and wanted, he called and said, he'd like to come out and visit with me. And this was the first time the Russians had ever come back out from behind the, the, the bar barrier, if you will. And they brought their, the, the, uh, capsule that uh, Gagarin went up in, and the box died, and then he brought, they had the one there where they, they were the first to get three people in space at the same time, and they had uh, Gagarin there, of course, and uh, a lot of the top people, and they had the, their number one test pilot in Russia, he was a general, and uh, very polished and spoke great English. Well, for some reason, the FAA got, I mean, the, our Air Force got the idea, the CIA, CIA did, that I had gotten pretty well acquainted with this general. And he had, had told me that he was flying the E-266. And it was a Mach 2 airplane. And at that time, we didn't have anything that good. And it turned out it would, later on became the MiG-21. But they were absolutely... Believe me, can you imagine letting somebody from another country fly one of your secret airplanes? And they thought in 1966, when I was selected to be the U.S. team captain for the international aerobatic competitions, uh, why would they let me fly that airplane? It'd be ridiculous. But they insisted, and I spent some time uh, on Lang at Langley. Uh, being shown what, could, I could, what I could anticipate would happen to me. And uh, I was assured that uh, the ambassador would have me out and, and I wouldn't get under arrest if I flew one of the Russian airplanes. Well, they didn't let me fly anything but the airplane that they had won the competition with, which was a Yak-18. And it was built for no other purpose except to win the competition. And we had home-built airplanes. 
That was the best we had in this country at the time. And uh, when they won the, the competition, 17 countries involved, uh, they let me fly the, one of the winning airplanes that uh, their team captain had uh, been flying and it had it serviced. And, and a million people on a Ticino airport and no traffic jams and a, a very polite applause when they won the, the, the competition. But I got in the airplane and instead of taxiing out, to the runway, I just took off from right where I started the engine and went straight for a dike that went all the way around 180 degrees of the Ticino Shoal airfield. And uh, I lifted it off the ground. I'd been watching it fly for 11 straight days, several times a day. And I knew how long it could fly upside down on the fuel they had. And, uh, I knew everything about it because it was pneumatic, uh, spitfires and hurricanes. Most of the British airplanes had uh, pneumatics. Air pressure would, would take care of the landing gear, the flaps, and uh, even if an engine start. And so I've been watching this closely for 11 days. So I held it down and stayed on the ground till I read plenty of airspeed. And I had enough airspeed to pull up and I retracted the gear as soon as I lifted off but I had enough speed to roll upside down and make it look I was like I was gonna go right into the dike. And so instead of getting up, I got up to the dike and I just pushed the nose up and went out of sight on the other side of the dike. Now everybody thinks, well, what's happened? He's lost the airplane. And I rolled right side up as soon as I got on the other side of the dike. And I flew all the way around 180 degrees out of sight, because I was below the level where they could see and uh, I rolled it upside down over the dike and crossed, and I did everything that they had done to win, only I did it inverted. <laughs> well, it was a great moment for, for a little while, and that was all, because when I landed, the, you hear these people who are stoic and never showing any emotion, they all they had no crowd control, and boy, they just came right out to where I'd parked the airplane. And uh, I thought they were going to destroy the airplane. I, I, boy, they're going to wreck this airplane, and I'm going to get credit for it. I know I didn't over-G it or anything. And so finally, they beat a path up to me, a bunch of soldiers with their rifles, and an interpreter was following right along behind them. And he, I couldn't get out of the cockpit. The airplane was rocking so bad, I'd try to stand up, and I... It was just really going up and down. And I asked the interpreter, he, uh, I said, where are you taking me? Because I had a gun on me, a rifle. And uh, he said, I'm not permitted to tell you, but you're under arrest. Well, they, they took me back to the hotel and uh, they had little cameras about the size of your thumbnail and they had them placed all over the bathroom. So they were looking at you when you were in the shower. And I was briefed about all of these things by CIA at, at Langley. And they said, you're gonna be taking millions of pictures of you wherever you go. And they were certainly true about that. And what they were trying to do was take enough pictures to where they make, could make you look like you were a homosexual with a, a, another man. 
and then blackmail you. And so they, they advised me I could expect that. Well, I didn't have any problem with that, but I didn't like somebody looking at me every time I went to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I, they just, I went ahead and showered, and this was the big ceremony, the banquet at night, and so the, these guards, they had two guards posted on the door, so I couldn't go out of the room. And uh, the interpreter showed up and knocked on the door and told me who he was, and he came in and he said, uh, uh, we're taking you away. And I said, where are you taking me to? And I said, can I contact the embassy? No, I can't tell you anything. I can't tell you where I'm taking you. Well, in this hotel, the big auditorium had curtains that came down on each side and, and each end, and the curtains were up. And Gagarin was on the microphone talking in Russian. And he looked up and saw me, and we'd gotten pretty well acquainted at the Paris Air Show the year before. And uh, he yelled for the guards to bring me into the platform there. And they did, and uh, Garen went on and on. I didn't know what he was saying. I learned later it was a, a lot of complimentary things, but uh, the head of, of what I guess would be their FAA said, uh, I was, we were, he said, you've broken every rule we ever have because, have ever had because you're not supposed to fly any kind of an aerobatic maneuver below 300 feet and you were right on the ground. And uh, he said, however, we don't think you could survive two such flights, so we're going to release you and we're sure you'll never do it again because nobody could survive that twice. <laughs> Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and I hope you've enjoyed this story of our flying legends as much as I have researching and sharing it. We enjoy reviews, and especially you Bob Hoover fans, you owe me one. We also encourage you to support our show at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For just a few dollars a month, you can help our 1001 Stories Network to make it to 2001 Stories which we're currently working on. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.